Third John, I think, may be the least read book in the Bible. Least known, for sure. Philemon is going to be a close second, if not first place. But Philemon kind of has pride of place for being short and unknown, and so everyone kind of knows it as short and unknown. And you might know 1st, 2nd, 3rd John from maybe memorizing the books of the Bible, but most people don't get time to read it. Or if you do, it goes by pretty fast because it's like a personal note, really. It kind of is. But it's also full with a lot of engagement that may or may not overlap with 2nd John. And you know, the scholars like to debate about this stuff. You know, when did these letters get written? Uh, what's clear, I think, is that all of John's writings come much later than the rest of the writings of the New Testament. The first writings really are Paul's writings. James comes out early. Matthew's pretty early. 60s, though, like 30 years after everything takes place, right? John's not writing till the 90s. It's a long, long time. And every other living apostle, those that were who were witnesses to the resurrection, who saw Jesus Christ risen, who were sent with the authority to baptize and teach, every one of them is dead now. They're they're murdered viciously and publicly, usually, sometimes far away. So maybe John's only heard about it. But he's pretty aware that he is is the elder. He opens the letter here. The elder. (laughs) And an elder is a word like deacon um, or even deaconess, that in the Missouri Synod has a number of functional meanings for us. We use the word elder here at St. Paul. We have a board of elders, right? And there's nothing really wrong with that, as long as we understand that that's just not what John's talking about at all. He means the last living apostle, the one who saw Christ risen from the dead and has his authority. When he says, you know my witness is true, that's what he's talking about, right? That he has this particular gift of the Holy Spirit that's a stamp and mark for him to leave behind a word to endure. And indeed, he's beginning to write that down. Revelation and John, the gospel, both are going to come around this same time. And again, the order we can debate. First John and the gospel of John seem to have an overlapping theme to each other. If you read John 1 and you go read First John 1, you'll see some real similarities. The word became flesh kind of stuff going on. But 2nd and 3rd John then also have a a strange relationship, and they're either paired to each other or they're not. I choose to believe that they are paired to each other. That is, 2nd John is written to the congregation, and and, uh, 3rd John would be written to the pastor, but 3rd John's written to somebody else to talk about how the pastor won't receive 2nd John, something like that. Right, and then Diotrephus, who's this guy? Uh, So we'll we'll get into some of that. I'm not entirely sure. Again, we we just have to guess. But what is shown really clearly, though, is the conflict in the church right away. The apostles are dead, and there's already somebody else who won't receive John. <laughs> you know, letters from John, he's turning them away. He's taken over the congregation for himself. Uh, and we'll get to that here, but it's not even about one man or one congregation. What I think is most important to see here is that denominations were already starting. Does that make sense? Like they were just congregations that were splitting off, but I follow Bob, I follow Jim, and now we're the Jimites and the Bobites. And they're arguing about who's really in charge, right? And all the while, the word of Christ, well, where is it? And uh, do you remember or you ever heard someone, a Lutheran pastor, talk about Luther's quip? And it's a good quip, though about how the word of God comes upon a people. And it's like a, it's like a rain shower. 
and it comes and it just rains and it rains and it rains and there's growth and there's growth and then the rain's gone and you can't find the rain anymore. And, and that is kind of the way that the word of God will move through times and seasons, countries, congregations, families, over generations, right? Over generations. But to see that that spirit working in the church is always coming with a visible conflict in the greater church is, is important. It's just, it's already there. There was never peace. There was never full unity. Nobody was always shaking hands. From the moment that Paul comes down, he does shake hands with the people in Jerusalem, but they send him to an island. They say, get out of here, you're causing trouble. There is always trouble in the church. And this letter from John is not only just his testimony about that, but also you can see a path for dealing with it, a path of understanding particularly. And it starts with recognizing where authority is vested. Right? So when he says he's the elder, it means that he does have some authority. Right? Uh, he says, and writes then to this beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. All I know about Gaius is that he's not Diotrephus or Demetrius. <laughs> and it would seem he's, he's very tightly connected to the congregation. I would suggest that 2 John is about, it is written to the elect lady and her children, probably a congregation. Some suggest the congregation at Rome. Again, it's hard to, to pin that down. But Gaius is this individual who's going to receive this private letter to give some encouragement and some warning, right? And so we're going to dig into that. The letter is broken down into a few parts. They kind of break into paragraphs easily. He talks about personal relationships. Uh, then he's going to talk about these travelers who come through. Then the bit about the conflict uh, and then some closing remarks. So we'll take those parts each, you know, as they go line by line and just pull them apart. So that first section, uh, verses two through four, he calls him beloved, beloved. Uh, David, by the way, in Hebrew means beloved. Uh, uh, it's a beautiful word. It is a friendship kind of word. Uh, it is a word that in English, like the word friendship, has been, I think, kind of squished a little bit. <laughs> it doesn't quite have the firm handshake that it used to. Uh, friends are, are people on Facebook who you don't see, right? Um, and so uh, this is something quite more than that. Uh, this is a a loyalty factor. Uh, this is a awareness of being bound unto death with each other, which really all Christians can have, but as you know, it's easier with those you know. And so I would hope that, that in some respect, you would be seeing the other people that are here at St. Paul as your beloved. That is, those whom you are, like John, going to strive for this kind of charity and patience with as you figure out how best to do what is good for everyone around you. Beloved, he says, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. I love this. He says, I pray that you actually feel good and that things are going well in your bank accounts just as I know your soul is rejoicing in your faith in Christ. Notice he doesn't just say, I hope life goes well. I hope you have what you need. He says, I know you got what you need. So I hope you get what you want too. There's something very beautiful about that. It doesn't dismiss this world as entirely evil, but recognizes its place. There's nothing wrong with health. Eh? What's wrong is seeing sickness as a curse, which you would then think God sent you so that God's mad at you and you begin to blame God for what is merely common to all men, which is the trial that leads to death. Eh? I pray that you be in health. 
What a good thing. For I rejoice greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in the truth. And there is some of that John's gospel language right there. You, you can hear John's flavor. He speaks differently than everyone else in the New Testament does. And I don't know if that's about the era that he wrote in or if he just was that kind of poet, uh, but it does come across. What's the substance here? is first off that John has received from others news about this congregation, which may be wry. He's writing letters <laughs> to deal with the fact that Diotrephus is kind of a problem. Yeah, um, But more than that here, the, the people that came, they talked about how good Gaius is. They talked about uh, what good things the congregation has going on. And so Paul, has, or excuse me, Paul, John has heard that the word of God is living and active in their midst. And that Gaius is among them, one who's trustworthy and well-known for holding to that word and walking in the truth. And when John heard that, he, he rejoiced. He's, he's glad to hear that someone that he you know, cared for once upon a time in a different way is still a Christian. Now, I, I don't know um, how to kind of put this in a bucket, but I, I can think of very specifically two or three individuals that I have baptized as adults who I'm not sure go to churches anymore. And I've always, always had that haunt my conscience. Like, what did I do wrong? As if it, you know, as if I could fall away for somebody else, right? Um, but still, it, it haunts the conscience there a little bit to hear that my children are not walking in the truth. Or, and this happens to many, 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 many pastors, not just Missouri Synod pastors, which is that they spend a lot of hours with youth groups and confirmation classes and a whole bunch of kids. They spend tons of time with these kids, and then, and then these kids are just gone. They're gone to high school, they're gone to college, and they're done. They're done with the faith, and you, you, I, you, know, you unfollow them on Facebook. You stop watching the pictures they put up because you just can't take it anymore. Right? So that's not you know, rejoicing that they're walking in the truth. So that's so that you might imagine how great a news it is when I then hear about someone who's walking in the truth. Someone from a youth group. Uh, we had a, a kid from one of my youth groups years ago. His name was Joey. He came through here, I don't know, two years, one evening. You know, it had been 10 years. He's still going to church up in Minneapolis. Oh my goodness, what joy it brought to me. What joy it brought to me. So for you then, how do you apply this? Well, this is just the desire to see Christ preached, right? The desire to see Christ in the lives of those who are around you is the desire to see that Christianity is thriving and well. Uh, and of course, you would want this in your family as much as possible, which always is going to come with reading the Bible together at home, right? making time for that and so forth. But to again see that there is joy in your pastor when you read the Bible. I mean, hear me as I say it. I'm not just Blowing smoke. I mean it. <laughs> uh, he goes on now to talk about also hospitality, which is something I've brought up you know, a few times here and there. It's a big thing in the New Testament. It's a big thing in the ancient world. But how we welcome and how we greet the outsider is, is what distinguishes Christians in some ways in that the rest of the world puts on hospitality as a show in order to save face, right? In order to look good and in order to maybe even get something out of it. But Christians put on hospitality not as a show, but just because we believe it's good to be hospitable. It's just good to be charitable. It's just good to help others. Are they too weak or poor or immature to deserve it? Even better. Very different, yeah? But that's what he's going to encourage here. Uh, Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers, 
who are born witness of your love before the church. So again, you know, those who are coming to John are telling him that down in this area, this congregation receives uh, Christians who are traveling through and helps them on their way and make sure they have food and a place to stay. And they even help out people who don't belong to the church. And this is just what's known about this congregation. And John is encouraging that kind of attitude. Yeah. Uh, he says, if you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well because they went forth for his name's sake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. That's a really interesting ending bit there. When he mentions the Gentiles, it would make you think perhaps Gaius is a Jew. It's a Greek name, but he could still be a Jew. And the way that John refers to the, the Gentiles here, but it could also be kind of catch slang for non-Christians at this point. Uh, John um, is pretty clear, you know, uh, if you have the son, you have the father. If you don't have the son, you, you don't have the father. And so anyone who is outside of the son is the nations, the goyim, the unclean, right? But what is clear, that was what's unclear. What, what is clear is that there are these preachers who are still being sent. You might call them missionaries. I don't know. Uh, they are Preachers, though, they are authorized to speak for God's word, and they're going from one congregation or another through the Mediterranean world, and as they go, they're stopping at other congregations. And John says that's good. Receive them, send them on their way. Right? If you, How do we apply this today? I mean, truly, you don't want everybody who's walking through and says, I'm a preacher, to get a chance to preach in, in your church. That's a bad idea, anybody who walks off the street. But what you can do is recognize that something like a church body exists in order for you to take care of your preachers together, to make sure that there are preachers, to make sure that when a congregation doesn't have a preacher, there's a way to find a preacher who's faithful and trustworthy. And while, uh, while denominations do not always function the way that we might hope that they would, and there are times of various uh, uh, what capacity, nonetheless, it indeed is here that we are to support pastors in their work. I mean, that is what this idea is, that we are to see the church beyond these walls benefit. And that's our desire, not just that St. Paul would grow, but that the Christian church would grow. And yes, that incurs the Lutheran churches around here too, right? But it's, it's bigger. It's bigger. And you don't have to like try to make that happen. It's just about an understanding that when we see Christ's name preached, we're to say amen, even if we don't like the person preaching it. Huh? And, and that's easy enough if you get out there in the denominational heckle and jekyll that goes on. But the idea that, again, we take nothing from the nations, yeah? we receive the workers of the truth, we just, we don't need, we don't need all the things that we think that we need. We don't, as a church. Uh, we have what we need in the word of God. Jesus knows that we need other things like food and drink, house and home, shoes and clothing, right? All these things which the Gentiles, the nations run after, they think they're so important. They, you know, they worry about what they're going to put on their wall next. Oh my goodness, it might be wrong. Then what would I do? I have to change it, right? The world is chasing this stuff. And Jesus says, your father knows you need it. Your father isn't like, you don't get any. That's, that's not his approach. His approach is stop worrying about it and I'm going to give you enough. I'm going to give you what you, what you need. And you know you have more than enough now, right? Everyone in our congregation has enough to share. That's a fact. It's a fact. Now we get the, the, the trial here, verses 9 and following. You know, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephus, 
who loves to have the preeminence among them does not receive us. I just, you know, how does that happen? You know, how do you get a guy who's saying no to John the Apostle? John's going to be 85 or 90. I mean, this guy's like like a living legend, right? And now he's just not going to receive the letter and he's telling everyone in the congregation not to receive the letter. What a what an interesting time that must have been. <laughs> yeah, uh, the council meetings, those were at. Um, John doesn't hold back, though. And this is maybe the most important, I don't know, wisdom here. If I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, prating against us with malicious words. Um, focus not so much on the malicious words and the prating as John's approach, which as Lutherans, we just call this Matthew 18. <laughs> John's approach is that you just talk to the person about the issue, whatever that issue might be. But you do it face-to-face. Huh? Uh, and you do it seeking to build up the good of whatever is going to come. But you're not going to, he's not going to, let a false teacher move about and do wickedness without saying something about it. Right? And he will call these deeds to him. Now, what's he calling to mind, though? Do notice this. I mean, it's pretty clear that the chief offense here is arrogance. <laughs> the chief offense here is pride. Right? He desires preeminence. He sees his role in the congregation as about him. That's why he won't listen. Right? And then these prating words as boasting, right? Not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren, forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. One of the most sure signs of a legalist is they need you to be just like them. They can't just let anybody else be free. They have to bind everyone else with their own chains. Otherwise, they would have to be free of their own chains. And the saddest thing, I said this on Sunday, about how if you really get in a debate with an atheist, you'll find out that what they really hate the most is grace. It's grace that everyone's trying to not have. It's grace we're trying to get away from. It's the freedom that we can't do it, but God's going to do it. That is always the, the thing that makes man's stubborn heart say, no, 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 no. I can add my little pieces here. I can add my pieces. And that's the pride again. Right? That's the pride. Wanting to take control of things. So, uh, John says, beloved, again, he calls you the loved ones. Do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Uh, that, that sounds so simple, and yet I don't think it really is. Um, it is simple to think on. Um, it's hard to apply. And yet, on some level, it shouldn't be so hard. I think as Lutherans, we give ourselves too much trouble. Like if you, if you have to ask the question, but what is good? <laughs> You've maybe gone too far in your own head right? Uh, John is, is laying out a dual reality that supposes goodness is so obvious, you can see it. And evil is so obvious, you can see it. And you know this when you open your refrigerator and you left something in the back for too long, right? You know what's bad, it's gone bad. So it's not as though the things that we see happening in our society around us that are evil are not obvious. They look pretty evil to us, right? So the trick is, though, imitation. What tends to happen for humans is what we see, we do act like. One of the little tricks my family's been working on recently is realizing that all of the language that we have uh, given our children to speak to each other with, if it's not from my wife or I, is from juvenile fiction books. 
And it's not that those books are all evil top to bottom, but most of the kids are snots. They're just snots all the way through. And then he just comes out of their mouths at home and, and we sit there and we go, ah, and then it's like, we can yell at them about it. And then what's going to happen next? Then they'll yell at each other or at us later with the same tactic. They'll imitate. See, we imitate. We don't learn. We imitate. We do what we see. And so the task of the parent then is when the kid says, snot, 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 the parent says, love, kindness, discipline, care. And over time, the child grows into that and becomes more like what they see around them, that, that boundary that's hedged over them. Right? And so that too is what John would have you seek to do and be to see things that are worth imitating and to know that that is what you will become. And of course, Christ on the cross, chiefest of all these. Uh, we're at 20 minutes here. I'm going to take just two more minutes to close us uh, for the evening. He's pretty rough though. If you do evil, you haven't seen God. I mean, if you are loveless and hateful and arrogant and rude and cruel and, and refuse to repent of it, uh, there, is, there is no knowledge of God in you, he says. He mentions this guy, Demetrius. My guess would be Demetrius is carrying this letter to Gaius. And so this is Demetrius's recommendation from John that, yep, this letter's from me and all this stuff. So he has a good testimony from all and from the truth itself. And we also bear witness and you know our testimony is true. So you can trust this new guy, Demetrius, he says. Uh, I had many things to write, but I do not wish to write to you with ink and pen. But I hope to see you shortly and we will speak face to face. Peace to you, our friends. Greet you. Greet the friends by name. So the final bit about, uh, I wish to say more things. I, I do know almost every time I've gotten to that point in the letter, I think, John, I wish you had too. Because frankly, it'd be a little bit more Bible and that'd be good. We'd know a little more. Why didn't you? Like, it's a short letter. You could have said more, John. Tell me something. But I think there's also a real lesson here, which is the value of face-to-face -face contact. The value of an oral word, right? From my mouth to your ears. If you watch this, there's a lot of people who watch at home. I don't say it doesn't help you. It's not the same though. It's not even close to the same in terms of emotional impact and the way the community feels and the spirit in the air among us and the way that we gather after the service and all these things, right? Uh, so again, uh, without trying to go too far out, uh, I put the word down. Now I don't know what to go back to look at. My word is always falling on the text. There we go. Ah, the fact that he does not write uh, more to them and that he chooses instead to highlight the value of face-to-face -face contact and to say that especially in a situation where we got to deal with a conflict that's going on, we got to resolve an issue that's going on, it's not going to do any good that he said, she said, and all this, but I hope to be there. And then we as a people together will talk and walk together I would imagine Diotrephus left the church at a certain point. You know, it doesn't sound like he was really supposed to be in it, but that's, that's not the point for us here. We're so far away that the narrows of whatever their fight was doesn't matter. What matters is that we see how John handled it and how John, as the elder, the image of Christ, then is one more model for us. And in that modeling, we begin to walk together, which I, I think next week in 1 John, you're just going to be so blessed by pairing that with all the hymnody and uh, uh, well, in Jesus there's no darkness at all uh, in Jesus name Amen